Father, this is our prayer. That uh, we would understand what Christ's coming means for our lives, for this world, for your kingdom. So help us to understand. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Sometimes children can be quite profound. I read recently about a kindergarten teacher who was observing her classroom as they were doing drawings. And um, you know, she was walking around looking at what the kids were, were drawing and the different things they were doing. And she came to one little girl and she watched her a little bit. And she said, what are you drawing? And she said, I'm drawing God. And the teacher said, well, that's interesting. Uh, how are you doing that? Nobody knows what God looks like. And without looking up, without pausing a bit, she said, well, they will in a few moments. <laughs> how do you picture God? If we were to say, draw God, what would you put? When you say the word God, what, what images, what ideas... What emotions come into your mind? As a society, we tend to visualize God in a variety of ways. And it seems to me that most of them tend to end up looking a lot like us. The purpose, at least one of the purposes of Advent, is to help us refocus our vision on what God really looks like. Because our, our human perspectives about God can so easily become skewed. And that's true, not just for people who might be outside the walls of a church, but for we who are even here today. And this is what I think John is trying to communicate through his letter, and it culminates in the fifth chapter, in the final verses of 1 John. Beginning in chapter 5, he writes, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. And we know that we are children of God, and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We also know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, at creation, our interaction with God was perfect. In the Garden of Eden, our, our connection with God was face to face, personal, and perfect. We were able to see and hear and understand and know God just as he is. We didn't misunderstand God. We didn't confuse God's plans and ideas. We didn't mistrust God. We saw God exactly as he is. And we understood him exactly as he meant to be understood. And then sent into the world. And it threw everything into chaos. And... 
God's information and God's communication to us was not changed. The problem was not with God, it was with us. Because of sin, original sin, our sin, the sins that people commit against us, the fallen world in which we live because of sin, all because of all of that, our receptors, our ability to hear and to understand and to see and to know God were damaged. And the result was we were left with a fuzzy, distorted image of God. And because we don't have that picture-perfect, exact, clear image of God, but we have a yearning for it, we tended to then end up creating images of God that looked a lot like us. And we created images of God that were distortions of the truth. David Siemens, building on the ideas of J.B. Phillips, categorizes some of these false images of God that, that we live with. There is the legal God. This is a God who we picture sitting in heaven with the book of Numbers, and he keeps an accounting of all the things that we do wrong. And he typically ignores anything we might do right. He writes down all the mistakes that we make, and he does that in non-erasable ink. With this God, we are doomed to punishment. We're never free from the, from the guilt of what we've done. And our image of the legal God is one who is intent on holding us accountable for every little thing that we do wrong. There is the gotcha God. This is God that resembles Sherlock Holmes or Kojak or Tubbs and Crockett on Miami Vice or one of the Texas of Law and Order. You pick the one that works best for you. But it's this detective FBI kind of person that when we get out of line, just waiting in the bushes to jump out and yell, gotcha, and haul us off to prison. With the legal God, we may not hear about our sin until judgment day. But with the gotcha God, we hear about it the moment we do wrong. It feels like God is always looking over our shoulder, following us everywhere, just waiting for us to do something we shouldn't do. There is a scene from one of the Seinfeld television episodes in which George is in a session with his therapist and he's been telling her about a pilot for a TV series that he and Jerry have developed and NBC is debating about whether they're going to, uh, to make it a, a, an actual show. And he says to the therapist, what if the pilot gets picked up and, and it becomes a series? And she says, well, that'd be wonderful, George. You'll be rich and successful. He said, yeah, that's exactly what I'm worried about because God would never let me be successful. He'd kill me first. He'd never let me be happy. And she said, I I thought you didn't believe in God. He said, well, I do for the bad things. And isn't that the way a lot of us think? A lot of people think of God only about the bad things. We ignore the good things that God does. We become enamored with God and the bad things that happen in life. There is the Scrooge God. This is the God that just expects us to appease him. Sits around waiting for us to do things for him. Always expects us to give up things for him. Wants us to do away with things that might bring us pleasure or be enjoyable to us. He really doesn't want us to enjoy life. 
He wants us to give away everything we have except, of course, the things that make us miserable. We exist purely for his gain. And there is the philosopher God. This is a God who's just too busy to get involved in our lives. He has to think about keeping the world in order, figuring out why things happen as they do. He doesn't really care about human problems. doesn't want to get involved. He's cold and distant and withdrawn. And he sits silently in his heavenly office with the door closed and a sign on it that says, Do not disturb. And then there's the Pharaoh God. This is the unpleasable taskmaster who is always increasing the demands. Like Pharaoh with the Israelites in Egypt. Build this much. And then it's build this much, but you have to make your own bricks. And then it's build this much, make your own bricks, and go find your own straw. And don't lessen what you end up building. We keep trying to please God, and it feels like just when we've gotten there, he ups the ante. More work, more expectations. It's like the carrot hung out in front of the horse. You can just never quite get there. It's a never-ending cycle of measure up or else. I recently saw a very insightful Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. Most of them are, I think. But he, he's, writes to, he's writing to Santa. Dear Santa, every year at this time, I send you a list, list of what I want for Christmas. And every year, you callously ignore it and bring me practical things that I don't want at all. What's the deal? Are you insane? Have you gone senile? Can't you read? Or are you just a vindictive, twisted elf bent on destroying little kids' dreams? Hobbes says, you might want to sleep on this one. He says, yeah, but it felt good to write it. There's something in that that at times reflects our human sin-distorted view of God. Why can't I get what I want? Why is this happening to me? Why am I having to go through this? Verse 19 here tells us that the world is under the control of the evil one. And when the evil one is present, we are guaranteed there are going to be lies. Because he's been a liar from the beginning. He convinces Adam and Eve... To sin against God by lying to them. And he continues to, to work at us to rebel against God by lying to us. God won't care. God doesn't, won't really do that. God's only interested in himself. God just doesn't want you to have any fun. God wants to enslave you. God is against you. And if you hear those messages enough, you begin to have a tendency to believe them. Which then leads us to the ultimate lie that God really can't be trusted. It's like a young child that obliviously runs out into the street chasing their ball and is punished. And they can't understand it. And they feel like their parents are being mean and vindictive. And in similar ways, we complain to God about the things that we experience. We can't understand that he's actually protecting us, not harming us. And it appears unkind and unfair because we can't see the big picture because our trust in God has been weakened. And that's bad enough. But when our trust in God is weakened, it leads to even more serious consequences. Our distrust of God leads us to move away from God who is the source of everything we're seeking deep in our souls. 
Sin leads us to misunderstand God and to confuse God's plans and ideas and to mistrust God. And it creates this chasm of distance between us and God. And God who created us to be close to him now appears distant and uncaring. It's always surprised and intrigued me that John ends this letter by writing, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. It just sort of seems to come out of nowhere, but it isn't. An idol is merely a false understanding or false representation of God. And the Christians to whom John writes exist in a culture of gods and goddesses and temples that are more than just religion. They are often the focus of of the culture and of the city and the places where people live. But John isn't really referring to pagan temples here. I think he's warning them about idols that are simply God substitutes. And these substitutes can be anything and can be about anything. And they can be anywhere. Anything that becomes more important to us than God. More central to our lives than God. More of our focus of life than God is. And John's warning is so serious because focusing our attention on God's substitutes leads us away from God and chains us to our sin. False images of God, idols, lead to death because they lead us away from the true God. False images, in the words of J.B. Phillips, leave us to worship a God who is simply far too small. And we see him as confusing and limited because we've created a God that looks an awful lot like us. And it's because of this whole dilemma that God sends Jesus. Verse 20 says, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so we may know him who is true. One translation says, we know that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come and has shown us the true God. We are certain that the Son of God has come and has given us a clear vision so we may see him who is true. The last words of John's prologue to his gospel, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Jesus says to Philip, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Paul tells the Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus enters the world in order to give us a crystal clear image of God. Who God is, how God thinks, what God does and doesn't do. And because our images of God are so small and limited, Jesus' revelation of God is pretty surprising to our locked in, distorted understandings of God. And what is it that we see of God in Jesus? We see compassion for people who are ignored and vulnerable. We see Jesus breaking down barriers that humans, even supposedly God-following humans, create. Jesus warns of judgment and wrath to come for those who know better and still use religion against people. Jesus treats untouchables with respect. Jesus is generous with all people. 
Jesus says that love, not theology, is what defines us as followers of God. He declares that the kingdom of God is not about power and prestige or any of the other ways in which we measure success. It's about humbling ourselves. Jesus values children as much as he values adults and women as much as he values men and races and nationalities just as as much as he values those who are called the chosen ones. And he tells us that God expects to be involved in every moment, every circumstance, every decision of every one of our lives. Now, there are people who look at Jesus and say, well, it's a great image, but he's really just a more enlightened and a more advanced view of God that we get in the Old Testament. He's different. I don't know what to say to that other than that's blasphemy. Jesus doesn't reveal anything about God that Moses and the prophets don't reveal about God. He simply comes in a new way that is difficult to miss. He comes to reveal what the others simply couldn't quite show. Actually, it's more than that. He's born to reveal God by being God with us. Jesus comes to make God's intentions Crystal clear. It's sort of like the difference between between the the broadcast of of regular television versus high definition. Whether you're talking about picture or sound. High definition is, is the closest thing that we have right now to being right there present with the person. I mean, HD sounds and 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 images are amazing. And just this week, I was reminded of the contrast between them. I I was watching, I was watching a a basketball game that we had taped 15 years ago, maybe more. And and it was on a VHS tape. Well, I have to tell you, I, I could barely watch it because the picture was so unclear and so distorted and so different than what I'm used to watching high definition. When we taped it, it didn't seem that bad. But now in contrast, the difference was striking. And pardon the metaphor, but Jesus is sort of God's gift of the divine high definition. In him is the perfect, clear, unmistakable image of God. But the coming of Christ in this way isn't just to reveal God to us. The coming of Christ is ultimately about us knowing God. Verse 20 says that Jesus comes to give us understanding, to make it clear who God is. And the purpose of that is so that we will know him who is true. John uses the word gnosko and to translate this translated know, and it's more than just mental perception, it's an as an element of experience. It's the difference between reading about something and experiencing what you're reading about. About 25 years ago, Cindy and I started reading books about parenting. And they were very helpful. And we're thinking, okay, it's really good stuff. And we're learning a lot. But um, it was a completely different kind of learning when a few months later, we wrapped John up in a blanket and brought him home from the hospital. 
And many of you understand that. They didn't teach us this in the books. We didn't get that in Lamaze class. What, what is this? We've never experienced that before. A completely different kind of learning. It's one thing to read about World War II. It's another thing to stand on the beaches of Normandy. Or even more, to have been one of the thousands of soldiers storming Omaha Beach amidst the hail of, of gunfire and artillery. It's one thing to read about horses. It's a completely another thing to saddle up and take a ride. Gnosko is the word that's used in the scriptures to describe a sexual intimacy. Adam knew Eve and a baby was born. And it adds to this definition of the word an air of intimacy with God. He want, Christ comes to repair our damaged receptors so that we have a clear image of God, so we will trust Him with our lives, so that we can live in joy and wonder of relationship with Him. And that's why God didn't send a letter or a package or an email, but the Word became flesh and pitched His tent among us. Centuries ago, St. Augustine in his, in his work on the Incarnation wrote, some may ask, why didn't he manifest himself by another means? No, by some of the nobler parts of creation, like the sun or the moon or stars or fire or air, and instead of a mere human being. He said, the answer is this. The Lord didn't come to make a display. He came to heal and to touch suffering people. If he just wanted to make a display, he could have just appeared and dazzled everyone but became to heal and to touch. And the only way to do that was not just to dwell, but to put himself at the disposal of those who needed him. God can direct our lives from heaven. God can teach us his ways from heaven. God can do miraculous things in this world in our lives from heaven. But God's ultimate goal for creating human beings is relationship. And relationship cannot take place from a distance. One of the intents of John's letter is to address the spreading theology that spirit and matter, what's divine and what's human, are incompatible. And that means that if Jesus truly is God, then he only seemed to be human. And John declares throughout this letter about what we've seen and heard and touched. And it's true. And despite our, our inability to comprehend, God is so concerned about relationship with us that he enters this world of flesh and blood so that we will know definitively his desire for relationship with us. So that we will be able to experience that intimacy of relationship with God. And he takes on the limitations of being human. He is born a vulnerable infant and this is the God that we worship. Jesus comes to clear the static, to reestablish the connection, to refocus the lens so that the picture we see of God is exact and true. But what's amazing is that if we will let him, 
Jesus will not only make the message of God easier for us to see and hear and understand, he will actually repair our vision and our hearing and our understanding so that we can experience God even more clearly and fully. You know, it's wonderful to be able to watch things in high-definition technology and in order to, to see clearer images and hear clearer images or hear clearer sounds. But, but if we have cataracts or if you have so many corrective lenses or you have other kinds of vision problems, the picture is still going to be muffled and distorted. And what we hear certainly still isn't going to be what we want. And Jesus comes not just to clarify the image, but to transform our ability to receive it. That's what Jesus is saying when he describes his purpose for coming in the fourth chapter of Luke. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And yes, our damaged receptors will not be completely and perfectly repaired until we get to heaven. Paul tells the Corinthians, now we see what is a poor reflection in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I will be fully known, fully know even as I am fully known. But until that day, even until that day, Jesus has come to make God as clear as we can possibly experience. And he does all of this. He comes and is born simply because we are needy and because he wants to remedy our need. God loves us. And a child is born. I once read about a group of first graders who decided to produce their very own Christmas story own program. And they put together their own version of the nativity story. But all the major characters were there, Joseph, the shepherds, the angels, the wise men, except for Mary. Shortly after the production began, there was heard from behind some bales of hay moaning and groaning, and it became clear that Mary was in labor. And then a a doctor in a white coat and a little black bag came onto the stage and he and Joseph went behind the bales of hay and they were back there a little bit and it wasn't long. The doctor came out and, and he was with a huge smile on his face holding this little baby and he proclaimed to the congregation, it's a God. <laughs> and you know, maybe with more sophisticated words, It's what John's trying to tell us. Jesus, God in flesh, has come. And in his coming, our image of God and our vision of God and our relationship with God is transformed. So how do you picture God? Jesus has come so that you have the opportunity To see clearly who God is and how much God wants relationship with you. Father, open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear. Open our minds and hearts to understand. 
Give us a new vision of who you are as we receive Christ. Take away all of the things that prevent us from seeing. And may we more and more engage in your invitation of intimacy and relationship through Christ. Amen.